Father, I thank you, Lord, for this group. I thank you, God, that we are family. And God, specifically on Wednesday nights, Father, there's just something so special about, Lord, your church, God. And, and, and Father, the, the group of, of individuals, Lord, that just can press in on a Wednesday night, Lord. And as Steve has said numerous times, God, and I agree, Father, by, by Tuesday, I'm running dry, Lord. We need, a re, we need a fill up, God. Lord, and so I'm thankful, Lord, that we can do that, that we can come to your word, Lord, that we can dig into the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, Father, and to glean and see this thread of redemption, Father, that you had from the beginning to the end, God, that there's not a a moment, not one word in scripture from Genesis to Revelation that doesn't speak of you, that doesn't speak of your plan for us, God. And so, Father, I I pray tonight as we dig in, God, would you open our eyes? Would you help us, Lord, to not just read words on the page and, and and to just walk away from it, but, Father, would you, Holy Spirit, press into us the areas in our own lives that we have work to do, God? Because we're never done being worked on, and we're never done, Father. We've never arrived. And, Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that we get to walk this walk with you because you're gracious and you are merciful. And so God, as we read tonight, would you, would you do that work in us, I pray. Get me out of the way, Lord. We wanna hear from you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys, this week, we are looking at something interesting. So remember, last week, right, chapter 17 was kind of, kind of a, a big old like hammer, really 16 and 17, were these two hammers of just like, you know, a parables, those type of things that are coming against the nation for their idolatry, for really just them as, as a people group falling into this idolatry. Well, tonight, we're going to be digging in really directly into God looking into each individual's lives and saying to them, man, like, look at the apathy that you have. Look at the, at the disdain you have for me. And so, as we dig in tonight, I just got to say, I think we can be guilty of this sometimes too, can't we? Because here they are. They didn't really want to see what was painfully obvious. I think it's been painfully obvious the entire way through. They didn't want to admit what was going on in their own lives. They found it easier to make excuses and to avoid conversation or to deflect instead of repenting. And, and I think we can be guilty of that. And so last week, as we've dug into the national sins... This week, we're going to be looking at the personal level of sinfulness in each person. And so, you guys ready? You ready to like seek the Lord and let him show us what he might have in here for us? All right, you guys. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says this. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? So God asks the people of Israel this question, what does this proverb mean? And this proverb was super popular during this day, right? We see this exact same proverb. We're not going to flip there, but if you guys want to, for your note takers, Jeremiah 31, 29 brings up this exact same proverb. And God, through Jeremiah says, well, you're never going to say that again. And so that's what he's getting at here. The proverb, man, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers have eaten sour grapes. Basically, the generations of the past have eaten all the sweets, but we're the ones with the bad teeth. That's what they're saying. 
right? Like, man, they went to Hershey Park and they hammered some serious amounts of chocolate bars. But then generations later, we're the ones with the rotten teeth for it. You guys, that's pretty much what it's saying. In other words, we haven't done anything wrong, but we're paying for the sins of what was happening in the past. That's essentially what they're saying. You guys remember, for those of you that are old enough, the 1980s drug commercial when Reagan was president? You remember whenever the, the dad walks into the kid in the bedroom, he's like, where did you get this? Where did you learn how to do this? And he said, I learned it by watching you. You remember that? Right? It was right along with the egg being cracked in the pan. You remember that? Like, this is your brain on drugs, right? Being fried. You guys, there's a level of truth in the sense that we do learn things from our generation's past. What our parents have done in our lives do speak into or should speak into the lives that we know and how we act. But we can't blame our parents for how we act as adults. And we really can't blame our parents even as kids because really, honestly, we still make our own choices. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. And I'm not acting like it's all just hunky-dory and that there aren't some serious trauma and serious things that have, passed, that have happened in some people's pasts. But what I am saying is, is that we cannot look at the generation's past and blame them for it. And that's what God's getting at here. So there's this quote by G. Campbell Morgan that I like. It says this, this proverb is at once an attempt to escape from responsibility for sin. And at the same time, it's a protest against punishment. And don't you guys think people do that today? Don't you think so? If you're raised in a dysfunctional home, you'll be like, man, I can't help but be an alcoholic. That's what my parents were. Have you ever heard alcoholics say that? I can't help but struggle with, my, with porn. I found my dad's porn tapes when I was 12, right? Or I found my dad's Playboys. Like, of course I'm addicted to porn. I'm angry because I grew up in an angry family. I'm Italian, I'm Irish, I'm Slavic, Scottish, or whatever your nationality is, and so obviously that's just how I am. You heard that one before? I threw in Slavic because I'm like, yeah, I don't even know what they're like, but there's that. <laughs> what about this? I'm a redhead. Or I'm a blonde, right? I'm from whatever part of the country that I'm from, and that means obviously I'm gonna just tell you like it is. You hear that one before? I used to use that one from being from Pennsylvania until this passage and others kind of hammered on me a little bit. You guys, the truth is we can't look at all those things and say, oh, we're never gonna change. We, you know, this is my excuse because this is how things go. No, if we are Christians and we're walking with Jesus, the truth is he's gonna change us. That's the whole point. We no longer have any of these excuses. And so this is what God's getting at with the people of Israel. And so regardless of what your family looks like, he's going to tell us what things are supposed to look like and how he views each individual. And so from verse three through nine, we're going to kind of look through in this next section, a righteous man. And he's going to talk about like how he treats a righteous man. And then 10 through 13, we're going to look at his sin-filled son, and how he treats that, that kid. And then verse 14 through 17, we're going to look at a righteous grandson. So this is three generations all in this one little section from verse 3 to verse 17. So let's dig through this. Ready? Verse 3 says this. 
As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. I think that's pretty clear. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountain, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone but has restored to the debtor his pledge, he has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing." If he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just and he shall surely live, says the Lord God. So here's this first man and he's living this righteous life and, and God's making it clear right from the beginning of this section, like, look, no one soul is outside of his grasp. Not one soul is outside of him. Because remember, this proverb is not only speaking of the fact, you guys, that man, he's like, he's saying, or this, this group is saying like, man, not only God, are you like letting the generations of the past get away with it, but now you're taking it out on us. So you're unfair. You should have dealt with them instead of dealing with us on this because we're doing nothing wrong, which is a, they were wrong to think that way, right? Haven't we seen that? But the fact is, you guys, is that there's so many problems with this Proverbs, proverb, and he's saying, all souls are mine. Like, who do you think you are coming to me, your creator, and telling me that I'm not just? And who do you think you are to come to me and say that I don't deal with people in a just way? And so he's saying, look, if there's a generation that has lived for me, if there is a man that's lived for me, and his life represents what, you guys got to remember this, we're looking in the old covenant. So he's, what he's not saying is that your works are going to get you there, right? What he's saying is this man did his best to know his creator. This man did his best to live a life of righteousness, not a perfect life, right? Not a life that didn't require any sacrifice in the temple because remember it said right in there that he was gonna live out the statutes of God. Well, what were his statutes? There's 613 laws in this book in the Old Testament that speak to all the statutes that were set up. 10 specific ones. And then he has all these other things like, man, you're going to go and you're going to give this offering for that. And if you do this, you're going to do this. And women, when you're having your time of the month after that part, you're going to go and you're going to be cleansed. There's all these rules that they had to follow. And what he's saying is, look, this guy here is doing his best. And so he's like, he's going to live. What does that mean? What it means specifically in this moment is Ezekiel saying, if we have just men that are living or women that are living in this moment, they're going to make it through and be part of the remnant. That's what he's saying. But let's look a little more long-term. They're going to live in the sense that they're going to end up when they die in Abraham's bosom instead of Hades. Remember, there was this Old Testament idea of where they went, kind of a holding tank that we read about in 1 Peter, which I'm getting really deep here. But the point is, you guys, is that that all went away. That's where Jesus went during the three days when he died. That was one of the places he went. He went down to, to death and hell. He went down to Hades. He released the captives. It was the first, right? Like it was the first zombie apocalypse. 
right? Because they get up out of the grave and they're like, let me go see the temple, see what that's about. Oh, that's nice. And then they go to heaven. Crazy. Where were they coming from? Abraham's bosom. And at the same time, he went across that chasm that is spoken about in Lazarus's, right? You guys remember Lazarus, the rich man, Lazarus? Whenever Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, and then the rich man's over on the other side, and he's like, can you just tell my brothers? And Abraham's like, dude, they've got Moses. They've got Elijah. They've got all the prophets. Like, they either know or, or don't know. Like, they choose or don't choose. And so there is no getting out. And so Jesus went down there and did that for them, too. He told them, this is why you're here. Because you didn't choose to live righteously. You didn't choose to accept the sacrificial system that God had given for that time, for that covenant. Sorry if that's really deep. We can go into that later. There's a lot there. But the fact is, you guys, this is what he's speaking of for this guy. So when you read live, read it in this moment that Ezekiel saying like, if you want to live, you need to repent and live a life for God. But also think of it more long term. In, under the old covenant, what got you to heaven? Living a righteous life, seeking the Lord as best you could. Now let's look at his son, verse 10. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood, in other words, a murderer, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, in other words, none of the statutes that God had laid out, but has eaten on the mountains, what does that mean? That literally means he's gone up and sacrificed to idols and he's done all these things, right? They all were on high mountains. So he would, they would go up and do those things. Or defiled his neighbor's wife. I think we all know what that means. If he has oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abomination. If he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die, and his blood shall be upon him. What's God saying? I'm not going to give righteousness to the next generation. How many times do we hear people? I've heard it a lot of times where people will be like, oh, my mom and dad went to church. And I'm like, yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means nothing. I was just speaking with a gentleman the other day, and he was like, man, I. You know, I, I went to classes earlier whenever I was a little kid. Like I went, to, I went to confirmation and I'm like, what does that mean? It means nothing. None of that means anything. You can have all the education in the world. You could tell me that you've went to seminary, that you've be, you have degrees beyond degrees in Bible. Without Jesus and without accepting that, you've got nothing. And so what he's saying here is, is that he's like, I'm not gonna give righteousness, but on the flip side of that coin... Let's look at this next guy, the grandson, the son of this evil guy whose blood was on his own head. And let's see how God deals with him. So verse 14, if however he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols or the house of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife. He has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge. That withholding of a pledge is this. Whenever the really poor of the land would come and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to do some work for you. Just pay me in some food. Like, give me some food and I'll go clear your field or do whatever you need me to do. And they would say, well, how do we know you're going to do that? Because of course, they, didn't, they weren't there 24-7. They didn't have a supervisor, right? And so they would give the cloak. Well, a poor person, their cloak was everything. They might not have had a house to live in. 
That was literally their blanket, their everything. So they would give the cloak as a pledge. And the idea of giving that pledge or, or returning the pledge was that at night, the Bible tells us, the Old Testament says, God said to them, if someone's so poor that all they have is their cloak and they've given it in pledge, give it back to them at night. Give it back to them at night. Even if they haven't finished the work, give it back to them and trust that they're gonna come back the next day. Show them that kindness because it literally could be life and death for them. And so what's he saying? The second guy, this, this one that was so evil, he would keep the cloak. He was that evil. And so here is this son, the grandson of the first guy, right? The son of the evil guy. He gives back the cloak. He doesn't withhold a pledge. Nor robbed by violence, verse 16, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing. Who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and has not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. So Jesus is making it painfully, or God's making it painfully clear right here, like you are not held. This proverb is absolute garbage. That's essentially what he's getting at. It's, it's garbage. It's not worth anything. It was just a, a, a proverb. It was just one of those things, right? You guys, the fact is, we have a lot of these little proverbs today, don't we? An eye for an eye. Christians say that a lot, right? What did Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. Forgive. How many times do we hear people over and over and over again saying things within the church even, you guys, that are, to be honest with you, if we think them through, if we process them in light of God's word, they don't hold up. And yet, people in the church use them. And so one of the things I want to encourage us tonight is to really think about, man, what are the words that we use and what do they mean? What are we willing to accept because we hear it all the time? It's Christianese. But that if we get to the bottom of it, we're like, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that really. And it doesn't mean there's not even a nugget of truth in it. It just means that overall, it's not very gracious or it might not even have enough truth in it to make it worth anything, right? How does the enemy do most of his work by giving you just enough truth to make it sound sort of believable. So do we think that we don't have phrases that may do the same? And I think it's worth examining. And I don't know what all those phrases are, but I know I have a few in my own head that I've used in the past. You know what I mean? Like those things that you've said for years and years and years that God had to work out. Like an eye for an eye is a big one for me. Because I'd be like, oh, this guy... This guy did this thing to me and I'm going to get him back. And it wasn't until, and I would say that to people because whenever I get him back and they'd be like, that's not right. You shouldn't have done that. I'd be like, man, an eye for an eye. They'd be like, you don't know what that means, <laughs> right? But I felt justified in it. And I feel like that's where the people of Israel were. They felt justified. They could throw out this little soliloquy and be like, I'm good. I'm all set. I haven't done anything wrong. And God's unjust, obviously, because he's blaming me for all the stuff my parents did. I have a life that I'm living because my parents had a sinful life too. Stuff like that doesn't fly. Verse 18. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence and did 
what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. The one that lived a sinful life died because of his own sin. And again, I want to remind us before we go any further, this is the old covenant. We don't get to heaven by doing what's good all the time, right? Because our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags, which literally means dirty toilet paper in the grossest form that you could possibly think. That's what the, that's what the word means. And so, yeah, it's not good in comparison to God's perfection, God's righteousness, right? But the fact is, you guys, is that even this hypothetical situation doesn't really speak to the fact that the two men that lived righteous lives are only going to get there because of their righteousness. It doesn't, that's not what he's saying at all. Remember, he's saying, man, these people did their best to try to live by the statutes I set up for them. And we do the same. We fall on God's grace through Christ, through Jesus. That doesn't take away the right or the, or the fact that we should try to do what God's word says to do right? We're still held to the Ten Commandments, not to the same effect that they were, but man, we're not going to do well for ourselves, and our witness will pretty much be shot if we're absolute liars. If we're in jail because we murdered, mass murdered a bunch of people, it doesn't mean that Jesus still can't forgive us and, for, and, you know, and that we might not make it to heaven, but can I just tell you, your, your witness is probably going to be a little weaker, Right? So there's a standard that we're still held to, the same as the Old Testament. It's just the difference is, you guys, we don't have to get bloody because Jesus got bloody for us. Because what did that mean for them? It meant a lot of blood. It meant robes that were red. The, the priests wore these beautiful, amazing robes, and I can only imagine how many they had because by the end of a day of slaughter, I can't imagine what they look like. I can't imagine how much red was all over them. And I want you guys to know that the priest's job was to hold the animal while the person whose sin was being, who the one that was repenting of sin, placed their hand on the sheep's head and slit the, the thing's throat because it was them. It was their sin. They were the one that had to repent of it. And so I don't know about you guys, but when I read this proverb, when I think about the, just the apathy and the way that they were looking at the sacrifice that God had allowed them to make for their sin that they weren't even willing to go do, it makes me think about sometimes how apathetic and how weak we take the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And how often we don't really think about the blood. And how often we don't think about the fact that there wasn't much of his back left by the time he even got put on the cross because it had been whipped into hamburger meat. It was a bloody affair that he paid for. Man, so we need to, we need to walk into things, man. We need to live lives of humility, of repentance. We need to live lives that are set apart from the world around us. And we can see that in these to righteous men, can't we? Verse 19. It says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. 
The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So God answers an argument before they even have a chance to make it. Do you guys know what argument he's arguing? Exodus 20. Verse 4 through 6, you guys want to flip back over to me? If you guys don't know, Exodus chapter 20 is where we read the Ten Commandments. That's the first time we see it in Scripture. And this is where God gives that in Scripture to Moses. And so Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 6 is the second commandment. And here's what it says. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I am I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So they were using this scripture. That's where that, par- that's where that little proverb came from. They took this commandment and they're like, well, basically, Man, if our parents have screwed up, then their iniquity is going to fall on us anyway, right? They basically turned this, this second commandment into a cosmic death sentence. That's essentially what they did. They're like, well, we're, we're hosed anyway, so why even try? Basically, that's what they're saying. And you guys, <laughs> that's not at all what God meant. God never meant that each generation would be punished for the sin of the previous generation ever. And you guys, I got to say something. That is still alive and well today. Do you guys ever hear of the term generational sin? That's where it's coming from. And it, it has no basis in reality because the book of Ezekiel, God makes it quite clear. That is not what I meant. That's not what I was saying. And so if you guys ever go to a church or you hear that on TV or anything like that, it's garbage. God looks at your life and he expects you to accept Christ. And when you've accepted Christ, you're forgiven. You don't have some weird demon that your mom had in her life because she smoked cigarettes coming around and making you smoke cigarettes. It's so weird. But that's the way some churches teach, right? Or let's get worse. Your parents sexually abused you. So you have the demon of sexual abuse. You're almost guaranteed you're going to go do that to somebody else. What about drugs? What about alcohol? This is the way that some people want to say, basically, you're hosed. You're never going to get away from this. And I don't know about you, but that does not line up with scripture to me at all. Not even a little. God is a God of hope. God is a God of restoration. God wants to take your life, even if it was a freaking burning dumpster fire, and make something beautiful out of it. And I don't see this passage and read this and see what they got to, because here's the reality, you guys, and I want us to understand this, not only in the book of Exodus, but flipping back over to the book of Ezekiel, in all of this time of history, you guys, it was very common for multiple generations to live together. In America, we have a hard time getting our head around that because basically we're moved out on our own and living with a bunch of guys if we're bachelors or we got roommates as girls or whatever that looks like. And then we get married and we move into our own place. But you guys, think the Waltons. You guys ever see the Waltons? The Waltons were like, it's a 
Yeah, <laughs> it's a TV show that was based around the time of the, uh, of the Great Depression. And so in the Great Depression, there were tons of families that were like, we cannot afford to function the way we did through the roaring 20s. We've got to come together. And so they lived in one house. There was like multiple generations, sometimes three, four generations. That was the norm for the Israelites. And so now process this thought. If, if there was a leader of a home that was in idolatry, and he had a son that grew up, and, and remember, guys and girls in this time were married at a very young age. Essentially, as soon as a woman began to menstruate and had puberty, they were married. Why? Because they needed to make the most of the years they had to, to be bearing children. And so their sons, the same thing. You were, you were a man at a much younger age. And so they were married, but guess what? They were too poor to move out and the dad was still alive. So there was no inheritance yet. So what did they do? They moved in and they started having kids. So now you have three generations quickly living in the same house. If the leader of the home was still alive, he was still the leader of the home, including over his son, even though his son was married, right? If the leader of the home is steeped in idolatry, can you find it that hard to imagine that that son that's under his dad's roof would also follow in his dad's footsteps because he kind of doesn't have a choice because he lives under his dad's roof. And so if my dad's worshiping this idol in the house, I'm gonna worship that idol in the house. Now, we could hope that the son didn't, but can you understand how easy it would be for him to fall into that? And now there's this, this girl that married the son. Well, guess what? She's also vicariously, essentially, under this, her father-in-law's roof, which means under his authority. And so even if she doesn't agree with it, she's got to kind of follow what the men are doing. And then guess what? As they have kids, what are they going to do? They're going to follow what their parents are doing. Do you understand the concept that's being made here? It is similar in the sense that each generation does see what else is coming, but it doesn't mean that each generation has to follow after it. What did it say at the end of Exodus? He's looking for people that are going to be righteous and follow after righteousness. He's looking for repentant people. That's what he's looking at. He's going to bring life to them. And so he's not saying it's a guarantee that the next generation is hosed. He's saying, man, unfortunately, the thing is with sin is that it's easier that way. But we saw it all throughout 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We see one bad king, second bad king, one king that's like, that wasn't good, and goes and cleans it all out. But then sometimes the very next son is like, horrible, even worse sometimes. Each generation has to figure out who they are. Each human being has to figure out who are you? And how are you going to live before the Lord? So this is a much different picture of what God was saying in comparison to this false proverb, isn't it? Verse 21. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die. 
You guys, we know that God doesn't desire anyone to go to hell, right? First Timothy, First Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says this, for this is a good and acceptable in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And he makes this profound statement that we all need to understand, you guys. God has never, ever been looking for perfection. Never. When he made Adam and Eve, you guys, he already knew Jesus was going to have to come die on the cross. He created Adam and Eve perfectly, and they were perfect, but he knew they were going to mess it up. He never expected perfection. What he's looking for, you guys, is a submissive heart. And it isn't about what you've done. And that's what he's saying here. And this is even under the old covenant. Look, you in one moment can change the entire trajectory of your life. Repent, repent. It isn't about your past goodness though either. You can be good, but what's it really about? It's about your current relationship with God. You can be bad all your life, but what's it about? It's about your current relationship with God. It's always about your current relationship with God. And can I say something? Nothing has changed from the Old Testament. Here's the deal, you guys. This is the whole Calvinist versus Arminianist argument, right? Are you once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? That's kind of the key, one of the key points of the argument. And I think the answer is yes. Why do I say that? Because I see both things in scripture. I know God is sovereign. And God knows exactly who's gonna be in heaven and who's not. But I also know this. Jesus makes it abundantly clear, and we're gonna read it at the end of this message tonight that he says, abide in me. Don't stop abiding. And so you want to know that you're saved? Abide. You want to know that you're, you're absolutely guaranteed to go to heaven? Where's your current relationship with him today? And if it's the same sense of like, God, you died on the cross for me and rose again. Lord, I thank you and I praise your name. You're good. I got to say this. If you're concerned about where you stand with the Lord, I don't think you have much to be concerned about. Because the people that should be concerned are the ones that aren't, right? You guys, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. John 14, 6, you guys, it doesn't, nothing's changed. The covenant has changed. Jesus is our final sacrifice. We don't have to go to some temple and slit the throats of sheep after sheep after sheep to forgive our sins because the perfect sacrifice was made for us, but the principle remains the same. We need to trust on the sacrifice that was made the same way they did. Verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. (laughs) Hear now, O house of Israel. Is it not my way which is fair? And your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, is it because of the iniquity which he has done, or I'm sorry, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he's committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live and he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? You guys, the Jews of the day were saying much of the same things that the people say today. God's not fair. 
We should just be able to do what we want. It's not our fault that we act the way we do. Our parents and all the trauma that we've endured have made us this way. And again, I'm not minimizing any bit of it. Because some of you here may have had a horrible upbringing. Horrendous. Something that you wouldn't even want to begin to describe. But man, Jesus can build something beautiful out of the worst thing. And so we don't have that excuse, you guys. The Jews of that day were also saying something like this, and we hear this a lot too. We don't really want to give up our own way. We'd rather live in this false world where we've done nothing wrong and we can slough off all of the blame on other people, which is so absolutely rampant in society today, right? than to actually deal with the fact that we should be submitting our lives to Christ. Verse 30. It says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone, according to his ways, says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. You guys, God is calling his people home. Even though just chapters ago, because remember, he's sovereign. He knows how this is going to end. But he's still pleading and saying, please stop. Please repent. Please stop walking the way you're walking. Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. You guys, this is prophetic. He's speaking of the new covenant when we will literally be given a new heart, right? This is us. We get a new heart in Christ. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. We get a new spirit. The Holy Spirit's in us. We can even look further ahead from there when Christ returns for us. When he raptures us and takes us home, we're not just going to get a new heart again, and, and right, and the Holy Spirit's going to be in us, but like you guys, we're going to get a whole new body. And like Emily was saying, man, our voices are going to be right on. They're going to be amazing, right? I'm going to be able to beat the snot out of a drum and my hands won't hurt. You guys, it's going to be amazing. But how do we get there? We repent. We repent from the way we've been walking. We walk in newness of life. Why? And how? By casting away our sinful ways. You guys, this is the way that God laid out to revive a nation. This is the way he wants to revive this nation. I think that God wants to do the same work in us. It's how he wants to revive a people. It's how he wants to revive you and me. The truth is, you guys, we are responsible to God for our own lives. Jesus made a way for each of us to walk in newness of life. And I know all of you here, and I know all of you are walking with the Lord. And if anybody's watching online and doesn't have that, man, it's easy. You repent with your mouth. You just say, Lord, forgive me for the sin I've committed. And you believe what you're saying in your heart, that that is the way to salvation and you're saved. You begin that new life with him. 
But the fact is, you guys, I got to ask us a real question. Christians, what does this look like for you? I want to encourage you guys tonight, especially as we go into communion. Go to the Lord. Think about the areas in your own life that you may be making excuses for your behavior. What about your words and your actions? Are you blaming those things on your upbringing? I did that for a long time with my language. What about your culture? You guys, people from Pennsylvania are well known for being jerks, <laughs> right? City of brotherly love is lovingly termed in Philadelphia the city of brotherly shove, right? Like, that's just the way it is. And so, man, when I first joined the military, I went all around, I went to Nebraska, and I was like saying to my my uh, roommate, I was like, dude, why? doesn't seem like anybody really wants to talk to me. And he was like super awesome. And he was just like, yeah, because you're a jerk, dude. <laughs> Nobody likes you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? And I'm like, that's just who I am, dude. Like, I got along with one other guy in the whole place. And guess where that guy was from? Massachusetts. <laughs> we were like, we get it. We're both big jerk faces. <laughs> you guys, we can't blame our culture for how we act. We need to grow and change and let the Lord change our hearts. We can't blame it on our geographical, you know, location and where we came from. Jesus calls us to greater things than that, you guys. Jesus calls us to something greater than why we are the way we are. He instead calls us to a life abiding in him, letting the Holy Spirit do the work in our lives of changing us and, and making us new. And the, the thing is, you guys, all that requires from us is giving him permission to do as he wills in us. Giving him permission. And in that permission, you're not saying to God, okay, God, I'm going to let you be God. No, you're literally saying, God, do the work. Like, I know you want to do it. And I know we can do this the hard way because you love me enough to do it that way. But I want to do it the easy way. So I'm submitting, right? Because he's a gracious and sovereign and amazing God. He will do the work in a believer's life, whether they like it or not. It's just going to be a lot harder and it's going to take a lot longer than if you just submit your life to it. And I want to close us, you guys, with a reminder of how our lives are meant to be lived each and every day. And I believe, you guys, if we live our lives this way, that they're going to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. I think it's a guarantee. And I promise you that God will bring revival to each and every heart here. And as that begins to work its way out, you guys, people are going to catch it and they're going to want revival. And every great revival we've ever seen that started here or overseas or anywhere began because a people group were willing to be like, God, you are way more important than all the crap that I have in my life. I was trying not to use that word, but that is the right word for that moment. It's garbage. And that doesn't even begin to fulfill the stuff that we've put in front of God. And it doesn't even begin to fill just the garbage heap of excuses that we make for our behavior. And I'm speaking to me too. Flip over with me to John chapter 14, or chapter 15, forgive me. Verse four. You guys know this passage. Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. You guys, you want revival in your heart? Abide. You want to see God change you? Abide. Stay tight with Jesus. Be in fellowship with him day by day. Getting in the word, you guys, is not a chore. It's a privilege. Too many people in too many countries don't even have the right to have this in their hand. And we treat it so flippantly. Too many people don't have the ability to do just this, come together and be with one another. You guys, take full advantage, abide in Christ, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you wanna learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.